The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the Word of God. We are going to be studying in the life of David. I do have some other material I'm going to be covering first. Uh, and I got a couple of things I want to touch on. But most importantly, we're going to be taking a look at James chapter 2. Because I want to make sure that everybody in this congregation has a clear understanding of James chapter 2. And that all of you are, in fact, not only uh, not only do you understand it, but I want you to have the ability to help to explain it to others who struggle with the meaning of James chapter 2. Before we dive in and look at any of that, I would ask that uh, we would take a moment of silent prayer. The reason being, we need to make sure our hearts are ready for the study of the Word of God. This silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also to humble ourselves before the Lord and before His Word that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here at the church this morning. And we thank you that this uh, opportunity for fellowship is, is something that builds us up in our own spiritual walk. We thank you that being around other like-minded believers is something that's a source of strength for us. And we thank you for that provision. We also thank you for your word. And we ask that as we study your word this morning, that you would help each and every one of us to understand clearly what you're trying to teach us this morning, that we might have clarity in our thinking with regard to these things. And through the process of learning your word and dwelling upon it, meditating upon the truth of your word, we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, what I want to talk about first is actually with regard to a discussion I had a few Sundays ago, I guess now, and I was talking about uh, things that we would get involved in with regard to uh, different uh, ministries. And I had talked about how some ministries are con concerning to me because, you know, I've known churches, for example, I have a uh, a good friend at work, and, and I've heard some of the things that his church has gotten involved with. And one of the things they have done is they went down to a, a location in South America, and uh, they were actually going down and drilling uh, a well so that the community might have fresh water. Nothing wrong with that. And I talked about that a few weeks ago. Nothing wrong with that. But they did not have as a priority in that ministry to actually tell others about God. It was not part of their focus and part of their priority. Their idea was we'll go down and we'll give them uh, drill a well and give them fresh water. And then, you know, maybe they'll be able to build a church and maybe they'll be able to do this. But they really didn't have it as a at the forefront of their thinking to tell others about God. And in fact, uh, you know, not only to tell them about God, but for sure to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, one of the ministries we have here in this church, I don't know if, if some of you maybe thought about it, but one of the ministries we have in here in this church it's not a direct part of our church, but we have people that come, is the Arvix ministry. Now, those folks, they go out and they volunteer, roving volunteers in Christ's service, right? Did I get that right? Yeah. And they go out and they do various ministries. So, for example, uh, what's, the name of the, what's the name of that uh, camp up in, up in Giddings? I always forget. Something Texas, right? 
Camp Tejas, that's it. Camp Tejas, thank you. That's, that's Texas, right? <laughs> Camp Tejas. Uh, so, for example, they, they have, might have a ministry, an opportunity at Camp Tejas where they would go up to Camp Tejas and maybe the person that goes up and volunteers and does work there, they might be just cleaning cabins. They might be doing work around there to get things ready for the, for the campers and so on and so forth. They're not even there with an opportunity to give a message about the Lord. But here's the key. They're volunteering in service for a camp that that is exactly what that camp does. Do you see what I'm talking about? The, the focus of the ministry of that camp is on giving the message of God's word to the kids that come and the adults that come to that camp. And so the point of it all is there's a ministry there at Camp Tejas that is God-focused and focused on his word. And when you volunteer for that ministry, even though the, the direct thing that you might be doing is cleaning or some other task like that, you're participating in a ministry that glorifies and honors the Lord and proclaims his word. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Well, see, I didn't even know that. See, I didn't even know that. So our Vicks, whenever they're, whenever they're, they're participating in a ministry like that, every night, you said every night? Once a week. Oh, but while you're there, that part, as part of that, while you're there, you have a Bible study with, with the people in charge, right? With the people in charge. And so, see, there is, an, there is a Bible focus and an influence there and in making sure that that's brought out. But from the, what I saw on the wall, when Ed showed me the things on the wall, those were all ministries that are involved in proclaiming God's word and glorifying the Lord. These are all ministries that do that. Yes, sir. Hey, see, there's a good point, right? So what Ed's, Ed's talking about is, so let's say you did go up to, to Camp Tejas, and you're there you are, you're in Giddings, you're at Camp Tejas, and one of the things they need you to do is go out and buy some groceries, right? So you, the volunteer would wear that badge, and the badge right there on it says Arvix, right? Which I thought, naively, I thought the RV was recreational vehicle, right? <laughs> because a lot of them have RVs out there, right? But... But but so you've got this this tag, it's got your name on it, and it says Arvix, and people are going to say, well, what is that Arvix thing? Well, there you go. You've got a witnessing opportunity right there. You can tell them about what Arvix stands for and what the ministries are. But what I wanted to do is clarify my remarks to say that if the ministry you're participating with has a God-centered focus and a uh, the idea of proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming Christ to others, the task that you're working on may in and of itself seem like a task that's not related to that, but you're supporting a ministry that does. Does that make sense? And so you're participating in the sharing of God's word in the process of doing your volunteer work. And so I wanted to make sure we were clear on that. That, But again, as they were talking about just now, Ed and Mary were talking about just now, even in doing that, you're going to have opportunities to tell others about Christ, right? Even in that. So you want to take advantage of every opportunity you get in ministry to share Christ with others and share God's word with others. Um, we're going to take a look before we dive into our David study. You can see from the notes, it's a fairly short study today, but we're going to take a look at uh, James chapter two. And in particular, we're going to scroll down here to this little section, which I'm going to read for you called faith and works here in James two fourteen. 14. Um, 
14 through 26. Let's read this. To, I will read it to you, and we'll, we'll talk about what this has to do with our faith and what we're called to do as believers. What use is it, my brethren, if one, someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And by the way, that question is phrased in the Greek in such a way that the answer to that question is no. Right? So we want to make sure we, we're not mincing things there with the Greek. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. And we're going to talk about what is important in that verse. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's a key verse, by the way, verse 20. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was it not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out uh, by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. All right, so this passage has been just mutilated and destroyed by so many people that I want to make sure we're all clear on this. I taught this passage at least three times as I taught through the book of James in different contexts. All right, so first of all, let's start with verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? By the way, I have, but I'm, I'm teaching part of this because I have a, a good friend, uh, I call him MJ. Uh, who I have spoken to about some things, and he has some interesting ideas about James chapter 2. I don't think we're that far off, but I want to give clarity on that to him, and so I'm going to actually ask him to come and uh, listen to this lesson on the, on the website, either the uh, MP3 or the screencast, and, and follow along. So I'm going to, I'm, part of this is for MJ, but I also, when I heard his views on all of this, I wanted to make sure all of you were clear, right? And all of you have the ability to understand. So what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? All right, so first of all, what's the first question you need to ask when you see this kind of a passage? Can that faith save him? Well, are we talking about phase one, phase two, or phase three salvation here? Is it phase one, phase two, or phase three? All right, well, let's go back a little bit and look at the outline for the book of James. Go to James 1.21, which says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Phase one, phase two, or phase three? That's phase two. <laughs> phase two. He's talking to believers. They're already born again. They've already placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're already born again. He's talking to believers here, Put us, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. The point of that is, as believers, we still have that junk lying around, right? There's still garbage from our past that's still hanging around. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You see, we've already, as believers, we've already been saved from the penalty of sin, but we are currently, day by day, moment by moment, being saved from the power of sin. 
And the word implanted is able to save us from the power of sin. Don't we have scripture that talks about that? Thy word I have hidden my soul that I might not sin against thee. We have scripture that talks about that, right? That we have God's word in our souls and it, it protects us from the power of sin. So that's what we're talking about here. When we go back to James chapter 2 in verse 14. Well, are we talking about phase 1 or phase 2 or phase 3? We're actually talking about phase 2. And the answer is no. If you have someone who has, says he has faith but he has no works... Can that faith save him? Talking about phase two. No, because what we're talking about, if there's no works, if there's no evidence of the faith, right? That's what the works are. And that's what James actually says here is that the works are the evidence of the faith. If there's no outworking or evidence of the faith, then is that a living or active faith or is that a dormant faith? That's a dormant faith. And if somebody's faith is dormant, then are they being saved moment by moment from the power of sin? No, they're not. They're not living according to their faith. So they're not being saved from the power of sin. This is phase two salvation. And the fact of the matter is, if you're not actively engaged in your Christian walk and, and you're not participating, then you will not be saved from the power of sin. You're probably succumbing to the power of sin, as a matter of fact. Then he goes on and he talks about some of the works here, right? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled... And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. This is very important. What use is that? This is very important. That word is very important because he's what James is actually talking about in James chapter 2 is whether your faith is useful or useless. And he's not talking about useful or useless with regard to your eternal salvation. He's talking about useful or useless in the here and now. In your daily walk. Is it useful? What use is that? What use is that if you say to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you not give them what is necessary for the body? What use is that? Even so, now this is really important, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. And remember, when I did this, I translated that as dormant, being by itself. Well, let's talk about that. Here's what, here's what James is saying. I want, this is so important. If you ever have to talk to somebody about James chapter 2, make sure they see this clearly. He doesn't say, even so faith, if it has no works, is not faith at all. Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. And we're going to see in a few verses down, verse 20, that that means it's useless, it's dormant, it's useless. And then he says, being by itself. Well, all I have to do, again, he didn't say it's not faith. He didn't say it's not faith. He said it's dead. It's dead faith. In this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. I will translate this and give you an idea of what it is that, uh, that Paul is saying here and add one word that makes it even more clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith by itself. Because there's no works added to it, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith by itself. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Faith by itself. Now James... 
James here <clears throat> says, even so, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, we know that faith by itself is enough to save you in terms of your eternal salvation. So what does he mean when he says it's dead, that your faith is dead? Well, take a look at verse 20. We'll come back. He says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's what he means when he says dead. That's why I translated it as dormant, because it's a dormant faith. Yes, you do have faith. Yes, you're born again. But you know what? Your faith is dormant because there's nothing being produced out of your faith. It's a dormant or a dead faith. Now, this doesn't mean that someone's not saved. And what it means in terms of eternal salvation, what it means is this person is not living the Christian life according to faith. They're not walking the walk. They're not producing any fruit. Remember, what did we just learn in Romans? We were talking about fruit producing, right? The idea that we're supposed to fr- produce fruit for God. That's how we're, it, it's supposed to work, and we're supposed to do so, and it leads to our sanctification. That's what it said, in fact, in, the, in Romans at the end of chapter 6. Then it says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, again, he's not saying that the person doesn't have faith. What he's saying is, how, do you, how can anyone know? How can anyone possibly know that you have faith? I, I, you show me your faith without the works, I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, you can tell that I'm someone who believes because you can see it. You can see it in my works. But if someone has faith and there are no works, can we even tell? Remember, what have we talked about multiple times, the idea that there's people walking around today that are part of the church. They're born again. They're going to go to heaven when they die. That when you look at them, you, ha- you cannot distinguish them from an unbeliever. There's no way to tell. They look just like an unbeliever by the way they live their lives. And this is, that's the point. That's exactly the point James is making here. You can't tell that somebody has faith if there are no works. Now, by the way, the works that he's talking about here are interesting. We're going to get to that at the end of all of this. But the works that, works that we're talking about here are the Ephesians 2.10 works, the works that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's the works that he's talking about. And when we get to the examples, it becomes really clear, by the way. I love that part. He then says, you believe that God is one you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So he's saying, look, you have faith. You do have faith. The demons also believe in God. There's more to it than just believing in God. That's his whole point. There's more to it than just believing in God. But he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You have to be participating in your faith or your faith is useless. It's producing nothing. It's unproductive, dormant, useless faith. All right. Now, let's look at these examples. These are fantastic. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, and justification, by the way, we're talking about justification of your daily walk. We were all justified at the moment of our salvation, but are you walking in righteousness? Is your walk justified, declared righteous before God? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that, notice what he says here, you see that faith was working with his works. And that's really important, by the way. Don't skip over that verse. Because you can be engaged in works, and if they're not works of faith, what are those worth? Those are worthless as well, right? So that's that's meaningless if you don't have faith working together with it. You see that faith was working with his works, 
And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And it doesn't mean that there, it doesn't mean that Abraham didn't have faith before. Right? Track with, track this with me. Abraham already had faith, but his faith was being perfected, matured through this process. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. And this, and that, by the way, anytime you can, you can apply your faith in your daily walk, it's going to help you mature in your faith. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now he goes on to say, you see, the man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, this justification, as we pointed out last hour, I'll bring it up again. I don't know if I closed it or what. Maybe I closed it. Didn't mean to. This is the little deal that we talked about last hour. Uh, the idea of what fits on the side of salvation and what fits on the side of the believer's walk. We talked about how faith, we had a moment of faith where we placed our faith in Christ and we, and we received eternal life. Ongoing faith in our daily walk. We talked about the baptisms. There's two baptisms. One, the spirit baptism that happens at salvation. Water baptism is part of the believer's walk. Look at what we said, justification. Justification is part of both. We are justified at salvation. Our walk is supposed to be justified. That's what James is talking about here in chapter 2. We were sanctified at the moment of our salvation. We're being sanctified in our daily walk, hopefully. We had eternal life that we received at the moment of our salvation. We can live eternal life in our daily walk. We talked about fruit bearing and sowing and reaping and how those things are part of the the believer's walk. So justification is part of our salvation at the moment. We place our faith in Christ It's also part of the daily walk. Now, look at what Abraham did here. What was Abraham going to do? He was going to kill Isaac. He was going to kill, but he was going to kill him, was he not? What is that without faith? Murder. It's exactly right. Abraham was going to murder his son if it was not an act of faith. See, sacrifice is the right term as a matter of faith. Right. As a matter of faith. But if Abraham had taken his son and he had taken him to the altar and he'd killed, he'd killed Isaac without it being an act of faith. If his faith was not working with his works, it would have been a simple act of murder. So James gives an example here of how this work that Abraham did that was justifying his walk. It was murder. But he he was, I mean, he didn't actually do it, obviously. We know what happened there. But the point is, that's what he was getting ready to do, was murder his son, except that it was an act of faith. And I love that because most people, when they think of works, most people, when they read James chapter 2 and they think of works, they think of going and serving food at a food kitchen or uh, doing something, you know, I'm going to do something around and help something at the church, or I'm going to do something. The examples that James give, he gives one example of murder and he gives another example of Treason. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting, the examples that he gives. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that's talking about, again, the daily walk. In other words, just because you got justified at the moment of your salvation, don't think that your daily walk is going to be justified if you just sit around with a dormant faith. That's That's the point he's making. He's telling us you've got to walk according to your faith. There needs to be works. There needs to be fruit bearing. Fruit production in your spiritual fruit produced in your life, 
or else your walk is not justified. Yes, you are going to go to heaven when you die, but you have no justification in your walk. You're not, a, you're not walking in righteousness. Look at this example. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? It was a treasonous act that she did because these messengers were spies. They were coming in to spy out the country because they wanted to know if they, could be able, they were going to be able to take it over. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, see also, so also faith without works is dead. And again, what does that mean? That means that faith without works is basically useless. It's dormant. It's not doing anything. It's not, it's not a functional faith. Does that make sense? All right. I want, I want you all to ask me any questions you can about this. I want you, anytime you look at this, this, this chapter and you see that faith without works is dead, I want you to always go say and take them to, to verse 17 and say, yep, it's dead, but there's still faith. James did not say that it's not actual faith. He just said it's faith by itself. And Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2 that faith all by itself is all that we need in order to be saved for all of eternity. So what does that mean that it's dead? You know, it's a dead by its own standard. Dormant is a, is a better way to translate it. And also take them to verse 20 and show them that what James is really saying is that faith without works is useless. And then you have to ask the question, useless for what? Useless for what? Useless for the spiritual walk. Useless for fruit production. Useless for glorifying God. Right? If I've got faith... And that's all, and, and you can't even see my faith. If there's no outflowing of my faith that's evident to anyone else, then what, what is my faith doing? It's not producing anything. It's a dormant, useless faith. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not going to go to heaven when I die, but it's basically useless. I'm a Christian that's walking as, as anybody else in the world would walk, right? All right, are you guys tracking with me on this? So you see justification described in here. That's, just, that's phase two justification. You see salvation talked about here. That's phase two salvation. Now, you might say, oh, well, pastor, you're just, you're just doing whatever you want with this passage to make it say what you want. No, I'm comparing scripture to scripture. Paul made it very clear that we're justified by faith and faith alone. He made it very clear that we're saved by faith and faith alone. And this is also part of the scripture. So either the scripture is contradicting itself or... James is saying something else. And that's the point that people miss. James is talking about the believer's walk. And that was his whole point. That's what he emphasizes. Remember, let me go back. Let me show you why. one reason why I can say this. this is another thing you want to show, show people when you take them to this. So here's the salvation, right? Here's, the, here's what that salvation I talked about. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Then what does he say? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. All right? So what does that mean? He's saying if you're not a doer of the word, then you're delusional. Because what's going on? You have a dormant faith. You remember, got to remember, if you want to understand the book of James, James chapter 1 is basically the outline for the rest of the book. And so he's outlining for you what he's getting ready to talk about in chapter 2. He's talking about basically you're delusional. You're, you're, if, you're, if you're a believer and you're not a doer of the word, you're useless, right? You're, you're not functioning as a, as a believer should. Does that make sense? 
So you can take them back to James chapter 1 and you can show them that as well. But the point of all of this is James chapter 2 is not in contradiction to Ephesians chapter 2. James chapter 2 does not say by any means at all that in order for you to go to heaven when you die, there has to be faith and works. You tracking with me on that? It doesn't mean that there, in order for you to go to heaven when you die, in order for you to receive eternal life, in order for you to be baptized by the Spirit into Christ, in order for you to be part of the body of Christ, in order for you to have all the blessings that we know associated with that, it doesn't say that it has to be faith plus works. It's faith alone in Christ alone is salvation. This is phase two salvation here, the salvation of the believer. By the way, you ought to go look at your Bibles and see how many different ways salvation is used in your Bibles. It's used of phase one, it's used of phase two, it's used of phase three, and then David also prays for salvation, and he's talking about that he won't get trounced by his enemies. So salvation is used a lot of different ways in the Scriptures. But the point of it is this, that James is teaching about the believer's walk. He's teaching about the believer's walk and how our faith is supposed to be working together with our works, that that's how it's supposed to be. Any questions? Anybody confused? I want you to be able to teach others about this passage. Yes. Um, I think of the twelve sheep and the widow that is left to save one. Yes, sure. Yeah. So there's there's that's a good point. So uh, we have. We have salvation. There is phase one. Phase two. Phase three, and probably the most common way this is presented is it's salvation from the three P's. The first one being the penalty. The penalty of sin. And that happened at the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You were saved from the penalty of sin. You are, as Romans chapter 8 says in verse 1, you are no longer under condemnation. Right? That happened at the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And it is something that is not retractable. It's not going to be taken away. It is forever. Like I always like to ask people, when you receive eternal life, how long does that last? Eternally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in phase two, salvation is talked about many times in this way. It's talking about from the power of sin. There's many passages where the word save is used and it's talking about being saved from the power of sin. Then phase three, again, the three P's here, from the very presence of sin. And we know that happens when we are taken out of this world. Now, that can happen through, the, through physical death or from the rapture. But phase one, phase two, phase three, there's, there's a passage, uh, I don't remember exactly... Um, uh, exactly where it is now off the top of my head, but it's talking about a salvation that is yet to come. And uh, it's not talking about that we're waiting for salvation from the penalty of sin. It's not saying that we're waiting for salvation from the power of sin. We, we already have the salvation from the penalty of sin, and we can have salvation from the power of sin every day if we walk in the right way. But one day we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. We're no longer going to be here in this world and be... Uh, are in these bodies of sin either. In phase one, we talked about all the things that happened there. 
uh, we do receive justification and we receive God's righteousness. And all these things happen at that very moment. Uh, we are sanctified and so on. We're set apart at that very moment. We could go on. We could talk about the baptism of the Spirit. But all of these things are, are all the things I've talked about with salvation, grace, blessings. All of these things are the things that happen the very moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And those things pertain and they go on forever. Another way to talk about this is, um, this is very important. All of these things, if we sum them all up, we end up with, with what is called positional truth. It is our position in Christ. That's where we are positionally is in Christ. Then we have the power of sin. We're saved from the power of sin, right? We can be, we can have justification of our walk. Right? This is where our walk is our walk can be justified. Uh, we can walk in righteousness. How many believers that, that have been saved going to heaven when they die don't walk in righteousness? Plenty of them. Uh, we can we can walk uh, with walk sanctified. All of these things are true. You can also not do those things, by the way. Um, we have, um, you know, as, as part of all of this, we have the ability to produce fruit. As part of our phase two, right? All of this comes about during our phase two salvation, right? Our, the salvation from the power of sin allows us to walk in righteousness, uh, a justified walk, to walk in a way that's set apart from the rest of the world, to produce fruit for the Lord, um, to, you can even say, um, accrue rewards. All of that is part of that salvation. All of these things come about as a result of being saved from the power of sin because we can either walk in the light or walk in darkness. We can walk uh, as, as unto the Lord, walk by means of the Spirit, or we can walk in carnality. We, have the, we can walk according to the flesh, right? We have those options. So when we walk, though, in the right way, we're saved from the power of sin. We can produce fruit. We walk in righteousness. Our, we're, we're walking in a manner that's pleasing in, in the Lord's eyes. We're producing fruit as we do the works. We have our faith working together with our work. We accrue rewards and so on. Obviously, from the very presence of the sin, we are uh, absent from the body <laughs> and at home with the Lord, right? I'm looking forward to that. You know, I've, I mentioned that. I've, I've mentioned it here before. I'll say it again. I had a fr good friend at work uh, that uh, I was talking to him about. He's a brother in Christ, and we were talking about our faith. And, I, you know, I was mentioning how I, I just can't wait until I get to be in heaven and I'm face-to-face -face with, with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, he said, you know, he says, everybody always says that. Everybody always talks about it. He says, but I'm really looking forward to getting away from this body of sin, man. <laughs> I can't wait to get away from all the unrighteousness. And I agree with that. You know, not just your own sins, but the sins of others as well, right? Um, and then other things about that, I mean, obviously, um, uh, at that point, uh, we no longer, we, we are no longer have to even deal with sin, right? We're free, completely free from sin. 
you know, we've, we've learned, we've learned in Romans how even right here in phase two, which is where we are right now, guys, we're in phase two, we've been freed from sin. We can now walk free from sin in our lives, but we choose sometimes to still participate in sin. But once we are, once we are here in phase three, we're completely free from sin. Yes. One second. One couple, Everything in phase We can, well, so we have the opportunity, I will say it that way, we have the opportunity in phase two, as we're being saved from the power of sin, we have the opportunity to glorify Christ with all that we do. That's exactly right. And that's what really what these rewards are about, is not to honor us, but to honor Christ. That's exactly right. Yes, uh, you had a question? And future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. What I would do is I'd use the Greek tenses here, and I don't want to get too fancy on you here, but for phase one, I would use the perfect tense, a past completed action with present ongoing results. In other words, we we were saved, and that salvation that we received at the moment of our faith in Christ still has ongoing effects in our life today, right? That's past. Phase two is present tense. It's exactly right. It's present tense. That's where we are right now is phase two, present tense. And then phase three is yet future. For, for us, right, for some of the body of Christ, it's not future. They've already been taken up and they're in heaven right now. But for us, all of us who are here right now, it's yet future. So past, present, and future. Yeah. So we can, we can put that on there too. Let me do that real quick. So that's kind of got that idea that this is past, this is present, and this is future. And the word salvation is used for all three of those. That's why I say you've got, to be, you've got to be careful when you read a passage and you see the word save. You have to ask yourself the question, is it talking about phase one? Is it talking about phase two? Or is it talking about phase three? And believe me when I tell you, and, and I know Tom right now is doing a study in the book of James. James is a letter that's addressed to believers. And he is dealing with believers and how they're living their lives and how they need to live their lives. And so he is teaching a class to believers and so when he talks about, you know, faith and saving and all of that, he's talking phase two because he's talking to believers in their, in their walk. So hopefully that cleared up some stuff with regard to James chapter two. But I want you to be able to highlight certain verses. You take them to verse 17, faith being by itself. You immediately take them to Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine and show that's what Paul said is it is faith all by itself. That's all it takes is faith by itself for us to be saved. So he can't be talking about our eternal salvation, he has to be talking about something else. And so he has to be talking about our daily salvation from the power of sin. Make sense? All right. I hope MJ is listening, and I hope it makes sense. And you can ask me questions if you have them, Michael. All right. Let's go to our David study. Some testing during David's reign. By the way, we, didn't, we don't even realize it, but when we go to the very next chapter in 2 Samuel, we actually have, uh, on our old VCR, we've hit the fast-forward button, and we've actually fast-forwarded past a bunch of stuff, and we're, we're actually much further down in terms of David's, David's reign as king. Uh, in the later years of, Dave, uh, of his reign, David faced a national test of famine. That's at the very beginning of chapter 21. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. So a a famine for three years hits the nation. He finds out, as it turns out, this test came upon Israel because of Saul's 
ill treatment of the Gibeonites. All right, second half of that verse says, and the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. So now we find out what's going on, that the test of this famine that's coming upon the land at the time of David was because of something that Saul had done. Interesting, isn't it? So let me ask you this. I'm going to give you a point of application here. What are we dealing with right now in this nation in terms of all the insanity that we have witnessed in our own nation? What are we dealing with right now in this nation that is a consequence of maybe something that's been done previously. Well, we've had denying of God. I mean, I, I, I ask myself, I don't know if you guys do, but I ask myself the question, what kind of consequences are we facing now or will, will we face as a nation as a result of the fact that we kill babies every single day? I mean, my goodness, I can't even imagine. I don't know why the wrath of God hasn't stamped us out already. But, you know, quite frankly, when you look at what goes on, it's just it's just horrible. But if you know, if God were to tell us the answer, why are we facing the craziness that we're facing today? Why, why are we facing covid? Why do we have cities that are burning to the ground? Why do we have all of this? Is there something in the past that we've done as a nation that's led to this? Possibly. I saw one hand here just real quick. Well, so, for example, as a nation, you know, we we entertain the idea of slavery in this nation for many years. Are we facing consequences of that? I would say yes. Yes, we are. Yes. Well, I think I think. Yeah. One by one, whether it be in schools or wherever it be, one by one, you're exactly right. We have been kicking God out of our lives, out of our country, and I believe we're facing consequences as a result of that. Yes, absolutely. You know, we dealt with slavery, though. As a nation, we, we put a stop to that. Well, we did. We dealt with slavery, but, but, but could, we, could we now be facing consequences as a result of what happened way back then? You bet we could. We absolutely, we absolutely could. So, yes, we did deal with it. But we may still be facing consequences. We're reaping what we've sown. Yes. Yeah. See, I think what we're watching, if you really pay attention, by the way, if you have a, if you have an eye towards the things eschatological, if you're sort of thinking in terms of the end times sorts of things. I think uh, not only are we looking at birth pangs, but we're watching, we're watching things unfold. If so, for example, if you, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not want to spread anything. I don't want to get controversy going, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. If you read the scriptures and you were having a hard time believing that during the tribulation, 
People were being asked to take the mark of the beast or else they couldn't participate in the commerce of the, of the world, right? That the, the mark of the beast, which everybody talks about 666. We don't know what it really is exactly, but the mark of the beast, they take the mark of the beast. If you don't take it, you can't participate in the world's commerce. Are we going to see, I'm asking the question, I'm not, I'm not starting a rumor, I'm asking a question. Are we going to see in this country and in the world, around the world, you either get the COVID vaccine if you want to be able to have a job, or if you don't take the vaccine, you can't have a job. And my point is, not that it's the same thing as what's going to happen in the tribulation, but boy, doesn't it show us that we are moving toward it. How easy is it going to be for the Antichrist to have control over the whole world? You can already see it, folks, if you just watch what's happening in the world today. Yes. Well, sure. But ultimately, we know that we're not battling against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness, right? So if you really take it all the way back, we were talking about in the in the prayer meeting. It hit me during the prayer meeting. One of the things that I have in the slides today talks about, you'll see, it talks about how the devil waits for an opportune time. I believe the devil believes that right now is an opportune time to do a lot of the things that he's doing. I pray that God will push it all back and it'll turn out to not be what he wants it to be. But he is he is seeing his opportunities right now and he is working through people like what you're talking about. It may be there may be a rich man that's behind it, but there's an even more powerful and angel behind this whole thing that we got to be really concerned about. Yes. Oh, well, this nation has failed horribly with commandment number one. Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. How many gods does this nation have? I mean, first of all, you know, I used to think, it's going to sound goofy when I say this, but I used to think, I used to think football was people's gods. As it turns out, I was wrong. It's fantasy football. (laughs) There are people who live and die by fantasy football, this country has allowed themselves to have all... We can't talk about God, capital G, but boy, we can talk about all the other gods, can't we? We've got God after God in this country. We don't have little statues on our mantles, but we've got gods nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, that... Yes, this right here. How many people How many people are enslaved to this, right? Their, their cell phone, their, their smartphone, no kidding. But I just wanted to point out, this whole discussion started because I just wanted to point out that David is facing testing because of something that Saul did. So there's consequences to what we do. Now, I don't know if you remember this whole deal, but the people of Israel were actually tricked into making a covenant with the Gibeonites. Let's go back and look at it in Joshua chapter 9. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, remember, so they, they they had been conquering, right? They were conquering. They also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet. Look what they're doing. They're dressing themselves in a way they they want to present a picture here, don't they? And worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and it become crumbled. Now, see, they're right in the path. Joshua is heading right towards the Gibeonites, by the way. 
they went to Joshua at the camp, to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, that's a lie. That's an outright lie. <laughs> we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you're living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. What a, they are lying through their teeth. These wineskins which we filled were new and behold, they are torn and these clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. First of all, right there, when, I, when they start saying that, I'd, I'd start getting suspicious, right? In fact, um, I, would, I, would look, I would look at them and go... Um, just one more thing. Um, <laughs> I would turn into Lieutenant Colombo and I'd start asking questions right there. So, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Now, see, there's where the mistake is, right? Men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Now, see, this is all important. Verse 15. He may, Joshua makes a covenant to them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Remember, the people of Israel were not supposed to do this, right? If you remember any of this, the people of Israel were not supposed to make covenants with the people that were in the land. What were they supposed to do to the people within the land? Wipe them out. That's exactly right. They were supposed to wipe them out. Verse 17. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Kephirah and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. Uh, Kephirah, excuse me. I pronounced that wrong. Kephirah. Uh, the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. All right. So now the, con the congregation's mad uh, because they're not doing anything. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. The leaders said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Remember, they said they were going to be their servants, and that's what they did. They made them their servants. This Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying we are very far from you when you're living within our land? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, but hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done 
this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. So in other words, they got deceived. They made a covenant. But what I want you to notice is that because they ended up making this covenant, the Joshua and the leaders of Israel said, we made the covenant. We need to honor it. So it was it was a covenant made under deception, but we made an oath. They aren't concerned. They weren't. You notice they weren't concerned about the fact that they'd made an agreement with the Gibeonites. They were concerned about the fact that they'd made an oath before God. Did you notice that? They made an oath before God. And so because they made this oath before the Lord, they were not going to go back on it. So they let them live. But Joshua made sure that they paid for their deception, right? They were going to be servants of Israel forever. But in some unrecorded incident, by the way, there's no record of this other than right here in this chapter. We don't know anything about this incident other than what's mentioned here. Saul apparently had violated that covenant by killing some of the Gibeonites, right? They were not to kill the Gibeonites. They had a covenant agreement that they were to let them live. But apparently Saul had gone and killed some of the Gibeonites in breaking in violation of that covenant. Now David, when he heard about that, he wasted no time in setting, thing right, setting things right with the Gibeonites. In verses 3 through 14, we see in verse 3, Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you, and how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. All right, so we see in verse 4, they, they said they didn't want money, and they couldn't take any vengeance into their own hands. They were servants. They couldn't take vengeance into their own hands. Instead, they asked for descendants of Saul to be handed over so they could follow eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. In the next two verses, we see that. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul the chosen of the Lord, and the king said, I will give them. So they asked for, for some descendants of Saul to be given to them. Now, they were following, again, as I mentioned, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, here in Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. You notice we always just remember the first ones, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? But there's actually a lot more in there. Uh, but the idea is they're following this principle. Uh, he came in and he killed some of our men, so we want to kill some of his descendants. That's the principle they're trying to follow. David granted the Gibeonites their request while honoring his covenant with Jonathan by sparing Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. We look at verses 7 through 9. But the king spared, remember at the end of that verse he said, I will give them. And then verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So the king took two sons of Rizpah, remember that, that's going to be important later, two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, 
Armoni and Phibosheth. So those are the sons of Rizpah. This is a different Mephibosheth, uh, whom she had born to Saul. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had born to Edriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalophite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. So David gave them over. Oh, by the way, before we go there, this is the covenant that David made with Jonathan. Uh, It says, you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Let's see. Say through 26. I'm not sure. Yeah, we don't need to read through all of that. That's good enough. Just verse 16. I think I mistyped that. I typed 26. It's just 15 and 16. So there's a covenant that's been made. And what Jonathan is saying is, I know you're going to be the king, but I don't want you to cut off my house the house of Saul. And so he's asking for that, not even in in particular, the house of Jonathan in this case, uh, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies from of David from the face of the earth. So they made a covenant right then and there. And as a result of that covenant, David will not uh, give up Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Now, Rizpah, we saw she was the mother of two of the men. She grieved for her sons and she protected their bodies from the birds and the beasts. Verse 10. Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them. That's key. Until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day or nor the beasts of the field by night. So she protected the bodies of her sons from the birds and the beasts. David was so moved by Rizpah's actions that he honored her sons in burial. Now this is something kind of interesting. I have a note here in a minute. We'll see this. Uh, when it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of, the, of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zillah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. And that's a, I didn't even highlight that, but that's an interesting statement at the end of that. Because they've made, see, they've made things right. If you think about it, they made things right. There was a problem. They were under a cursing because of what had happened. Uh, and now that cursing was removed because it, things had been made right. Uh, I had a note here, while normally the body of someone hung would be removed by sundown, these bodies remained until it rained, indicating the national curse was over. And what I want you to think about is this. Uh, The passage here in Deuteronomy, let me go ahead and read it because it'll make sense when I read it. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. And then parentheses, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, close parentheses, so that you do not defile your land with the, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, that's what normally would happen. Now, this is the, prob- the difference here is this passage is talking about 
an individual man committing an individual sin, right? And so when that man is hanged, if he's hanged up from a tree, then he is not to stay up on that tree. He's to be brought down and buried the same day that he's hanged. Now, in this case, where these men were hung by the Gibeonites, was it individual sins that put them there or was it a national sin? Was it a national sin? Was the was the the country under cursing because of what Saul had done? It was still an individual sin in the sense that Saul did it, but the whole nation was under cursing. Remember, there's a famine in the land. The whole nation is under cursing. Well, these men were hung from the hung from the tree. They were hanging there from the Gibeonites, and they were they remained there hanging until it rained. Remember that? I pointed out. Remember it said, until it rained. Why? What's significant about that? Because that's the end of the national cursing. When the rain is finally given to the land and they receive the rain that would be able to produce the, the crops, then there's not going to be a famine anymore. So once the rain starts happening, then the men were taken down. But David was so moved by Rizpah and her care for the men. And not only that, I believe, I don't have it in the notes, not only that, I believe this also triggered a thought. It reminded him of what happened when Jonathan and Saul were killed and they were hung up. Remember how they were hung up as well and put on display? And the men of Jabesh Gilead came and got them and took them and showed them the proper respect. And now what David is doing is I'm sure that remi- this reminded him of that. And he took Saul and Jonathan and these men who had died uh, at the hand of the Gibeonites and he gave them a proper burial. Now, it doesn't specifically mention them in this passage. It talks about that they did bury um, the bones of Saul and Jonathan, but it's implied in the passage because they gathered all the bones together. And so Jonathan and Saul were buried there, and they gave a proper and an honored burial to these men also who had died in this, in this incident. So I thought that was significant. <clears throat> David fought. Now, this is interesting here. David fought in battle against the Philistines and struggled. This is more testing. Different incident now. We're under testing. Now, when, David, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down with his, and his servants with him, and as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. So the men are telling him, David, you need to not come out with us anymore to battle. And that's what David would normally do, is go out and lead lead the armies. David is older now. He lacks strength. We saw the fact that he became weary. He became weary. He's oh, he's older now. When he's out there in the fighting with the men, he he lacked the strength to be able to fight. One of Goliath's descendants. That's who we're talking about here. One of the Goliath's descendants intended to kill David, but Abishai took care of him. We saw that. And by the way, I don't know if they're listening or not, but a long time ago, a question came up. Uh, I think it was Letty who asked me the question about the Nephilim and whether or not the Nephilim could procreate. And the, I didn't know the answer at the time, but the answer is yes. These are descendants of, of Goliath, who was Nephilim. So yes, they can procreate. 
they asked David to stay back in the future. They didn't, they, they didn't, they didn't want him to come out in future battles at all because he, was, he, was, he shouldn't be out there. Now, see, again, this is interesting because David is out there with the troops this time, right? He's out there with the troops this time, and he's fighting with the men, and he's too tired to be able to keep going. And the men say, you need to stay back. Shows you how different it is from what we had before, which is when he should have been out with the men fighting with alongside Uriah the Hittite. But instead, what was he doing? He was back at the castle and he was looking at Bathsheba and that whole thing takes place, right? He should have been at that. He was much younger. When the whole Bathsheba incident happened, he was much younger. He should have been out there in the battle. But here he's in the battle like he should have been all along. But his men tell him, okay, you need to stay behind. This is an example, as I mentioned, of the devil attempting to wait for an opportune time. Um, Think about it for a second. David is weary now. He's not able to actually fight against the giant, right? So what happened when Israel was up against the giant, Goliath, and the forces of Israel were, were all standing there afraid to do anything? This young boy, David, comes up and slays the giant. Now, fast forward, again, fast forward on your VCR. I know nobody has a VCR anymore, but still, I think it's funny. But you fast forward and you end up getting to the future where David is much older now, and basically the same thing happens. They're fighting the Philistines, and what happens? He's got one of the descendants of Goliath there who's a giant, and he's up against them, and David now is too weary to be able to fight against him. So it shows how the devil will wait for an opportune time, right? He's he's going to continue to use that ploy against the people of Israel. And this time, David's too weary to be able to stand up. Thank goodness, Abishai took care of him, which, by the way, teaches us a lesson. We should make sure that we pass these things down, right? David had taught Abishai and others, the mighty men who fought for him, he had taught them about how they were to face these sorts of things. So now David's getting too old to do it himself, but he's got people with him, the mighty men with him, who can take care of it. It's very important to pass these things along. Let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 4. This is the temptation of Jesus, as you know, out in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. That's very important. He didn't go out there just willy-nilly. He was led by the Spirit. He was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. I want you to notice that. A lot of people think he was hungry the whole time. Nope. It wasn't until the 40 days were up, then he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Again, temptations, right? And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me. By the way, I believe that happened at the fall in the garden been handed over to me because who was supposed to have dominion over the earth yeah man but uh, i believe it was handed over right then and there for it has been handed over to me and i give it to whomever i wish therefore if you worship before me it shall all be yours jesus answered him it is written you shall worship the lord your god and serve him only twice he's been challenged and twice he's answered with scripture verse 9 and he led him to jerusalem and he had him stand on the the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice in verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him and never came back. No, that's not what it says. He left him until an opportune time. You got to remember that in your own lives, folks, that if you're under a situation where you're under testing and you feel like the adversary has been given permission to sift you like wheat and you pass that test, he's going to be prowling about waiting for an opportune time. Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, there was way more. He'd been tempting him for 40 days. We only learn about those three at the very end. He'd been tempting him for 40 days out there in the wilderness, and we don't even know what all those were. Three more relatives of Goliath were killed by David's men. In the last uh, chapters of this, this book, let's, uh, this uh, 2 Samuel chap, uh, chapter 21, I should say. Uh, now, it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Uh, then Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of jer Oregim, the Bethlehemite, Killed Goliath the Gittite. Now we're going to look at something on that in just a minute. Killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Verse 20, there was war at Gath again, uh, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. Uh, these four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. All right, so three more were killed. By the way, um, we'll see this is not actually Goliath. This is his brother. I believe that's a text, textual error there in 2 Samuel. So first of all, we saw that uh, Sibachai the Hushethite killed Saph. We saw that in verse 18. Then Elhanan killed Goliath's brother, actually, in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And there was war with the Philistines again. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So I believe in this passage, this particular passage, we have a textual uh, problem in the, uh, not here, in the um, passage here in Second Samuel, that this has probably been, uh, there's been some errors in the text here at some point. But we know from, from the, uh, the record in First Chronicles 20 that this is Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite. And in fact, I think they have a note to that effect. Yeah. Lami, the brother of Goliath, is actually who was killed there. Because we know Goliath's already dead, right? Goliath's already been killed. Uh, Jonathan, David's nephew, killed a six-fingered, six-toed giant. And I have to wonder, did he go up to him and say, I am Jonathan, you kill my father, prepare to die? <laughs> I had to say it. Yes. <clears throat> Yeah. Right. Sure. Oh yeah, the idea of the genetic the genetic aberrations, and so maybe some of these guys were uh, impaired vision-wise and so on. But if you remember what happened with the people of Israel there at that battle with Goliath and the Philistines, it didn't matter. His his mere stature 
scared them out of their minds. They weren't even thinking in logical terms like what you're talking about. They were so filled with irrational fear that they weren't going to even think about taking on the giant. But yeah, these kinds of things are actually quite common in the giants. They have these aberrations like this, the six-fingered man. But, I, but, he's, but he's the one who killed uh, Inigo Montoya. And so, <laughs> therefore... Uh, but no, actually it was, uh, let's see, is Inigo Montoya the one who killed the six-fingered man? So he's the one, so it's his dad. What was his dad's name? There's a whole chapter in the book about his dad. Anyway, I, I, I can't help it. I, as soon as I saw the six-fingered man, I was like, I went directly to uh, Princess Bride. Anyway, Abishai had killed uh, Ishbi Benob. We, we saw that. So there were four, to- four of the Nephilim killed in all. Now, this is significant because, again, these Nephilim, they were pretty, they were pretty powerful individuals. They were tall you know, giants, uh, you know, the description of Goliath, he's roughly nine feet tall. I mean, we're talking about massive, massive uh, creatures. Uh, they were very intimidating. But see, none of these none of these men, none of these mighty men are scared of them. And part of the reason, again, is because David has passed down to them uh, that if they're fighting and they're fighting on the side of the Lord, then they have no fear of these people. Right. So these giants are killed. And it's a significant thing because the, because the mighty men of Israel that are under David are not afraid uh, of these giants. All right, that's the end of our, our lesson for today. Uh, I want to look at our scripture of the week real quick in the time we have remaining as I want to get to our potluck, of course. <clears throat> we're, go- we're not going to read all of verse 10. We're only going to read the first, first line of verse 10, but let's all read this together here in Psalm uh, 46, starting in verse 8. Come... Behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. All right. So God has wrought desolations in the earth, I want to start with this. Behold the works of the Lord. The Bible has revealed to us many, many, many things that God has done. And you can witness in your own life the works of the Lord. How many of us have? You know you have. You witnessed the works of the Lord in your own life. Behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations on the earth. God has been able to bring about desolations on the earth. But then what in verse 9 it says, He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Remember, when everything is set up and prepared for the millennial kingdom yet future, he is going to put an end to war. All the implements of war are going to be, you know, the the swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. The implements of war are no longer going to be used for war. People aren't even going to be trained for war anymore. And God is going to bring this about. He brings an end to war to the ends of the earth, breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two and burns the chariots with fire. God can do all of these things. So he can, on the one hand, he can bring about desolations in the earth. He also can bring an end to all warfare. This gives you a picture of who God is. That's the context for Cease striving and know that I am God. The lesson that you want to get out of this that's so important. If I, by the way, you've probably memorized that verse as be still. 
Be still and know that I am God. And it's the same kind of language. There's no problem with that language. That's just fine. Be still and know that I am God. Here's the interesting thing about the Christian way of life. And this is why we've talked about this so many times. This is why it is so important to be in tune with God. We just saw a a mistake that Joshua and the Israelites made with the Gibeonites because what happened when all this was happening, they did not seek after the Lord. And as a result, they ended up making a covenant that they should not have. We need to be in lockstep and in tune with the Lord. And that comes through growth, that comes through the word of God, that comes through prayerfulness, that comes through seeking after his wisdom and so on and so forth. Because God calls us to do the works which he has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God calls us to action. But God also tells us that there are times when we need to be still and know that he is God. And which one is which? When are we supposed to be engaged in action? And when are we supposed to sit back and be still? Well, look at the magnitude of what God is talking about in these verses. He's going to bring peace to the ends of the earth. He's going to destroy the bow and the spear, burn up the chariots, right? Peace on earth. Who's the only one that can bring that about? God himself. Now, that doesn't mean we, that doesn't mean that there's not times. There's not times when we have to step in and have action and we do things. But when we look at what old, the ultimate goal is to have peace on earth, on the whole entire earth, cease striving and know that he is God. Be still and recognize God's going to bring it about. So my point is this. And I'm just going to leave it at that. My point is this. There are times when we are called to be still. There are also times when we're called to take action. And the way we know the difference is the leading of the Holy Spirit. The way we know the difference is to seek after God's wisdom and understand what he would have us to do. There are times, like for example, I asked myself the question. We talked about it in the prayer meeting. The things that we see happening in our country. Who's the only one who can actually resolve all of those things? God himself. Is this a time when we are to be still and know that he is God? Or is this a time when we should take action? And I'm throwing it out there as a question. Right now, I don't have an answer. Because what we see going on in this land, we don't want, we we don't necessarily, what's the right way to say this? We shouldn't assume that we're not supposed to do anything about it. Now, I hope all of you in this room, I hope everybody in here is, is prayerful about this. That you're lifting everything up that's going on in prayer and praying for this nation. And the things that we're seeing. But is there a point at which we're supposed to take action? Or is this one of those things when we see riots in our cities. And we see the craziness that's going on in the land around us. Is this one of those times when we're supposed to be still. And watch God take care of it. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm throwing it before you and I'm asking you to pray about it. I'm pointing out to you that there are times. When we're supposed to cease striving. Or be still. And know that he is God. And only through prayer. And only through seeking after God and his wisdom can we know the difference. I believe that we as a people, the the people in this country that are the ones that are the law-abiding citizens, the ones who fear God, the uh, the ones who believe that this country was founded on the basis of righteous principles and we believe that we should stand for those principles, 
I believe that we should not be uh, sitting back getting run over by the crowd of violent oppressors that we see in our land. I don't think we should be. But at the same time, is this something God's going to do? And he's going to do it in his own way. Or are we supposed to stand up? And I'm not, again, I'm not answering the question. I'm telling you there is a question that needs to be asked because there are times when we're supposed to be still. We're supposed to stop striving and let God be God and let him take care of it. Example, example of the Israelites with the Pharaoh. If they could have fought and fought and fought, and were they ever going to get themselves free for, from Egypt? Or was it something that God had to do when he brought the plagues? God was the one who had to do it. Again, we have to ask ourselves the question. And I believe that we, I believe that we shouldn't just roll over and be taken over by a bunch of crazies. But at the same time, we need to prayerfully consider what the right thing is for us to do. And that's my point. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do seek your wisdom. We do want to know. We believe, we do believe we should defend our faith. We should stand up for what, what was given us in the blessing of this country with the freedoms that we have to be able to worship you. And we do believe that what has come upon us as a nation is a consequence of things that we've done in the past. Without a doubt, we're reaping what we have sown. And but Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to know whether we are supposed to take action, whether we are supposed to be standing up and actually uh, putting ourselves in the front line uh, beyond our prayers, Father. If there are things that we're supposed to do, we want to know what those things are. We don't want to just sit back and get rolled over. But at the same time, if you are the one that's going to bring about a dramatic and amazing thing in this country, uh, we also don't want to get in the way of that. If it's for us to be still and know that you are God, then give us the wisdom to do that. At the same time, uh, help us to constantly be diligent in lifting up prayers for this land and praying for the people that are suffering from all the violence that's taking place in this land. Help us to have the wisdom to know where we are supposed to stop being still and start taking action. Help us to have wisdom. Help us to have determination. Help us to persevere through the times that we see happening in this land that we might truly honor and glorify you with all that we do. And that includes the being still, Father. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you all can stick around for the potluck.